2: Welcome to A Breath of Fresh Earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman.
3: Do you recognize what kind of clock this is? If you guessed a time melody clock, you're right. But what sounds would a doomsday clock play? What is the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists? The Bulletin equips the public, policymakers, and scientists with the information needed to reduce man-made threats to our existence. The Doomsday Clock is designed to warn the public about how close we are to destroying our world with dangerous technologies and climate change. When the Doomsday Clock was created in 1947, the greatest danger to humanity was from nuclear weapons. The prospect that the United States and the Soviet Union were headed for an arms race was terrible. In the early days, bulletin editor Eugene Rabinowitch decided whether the hand should be moved. A scientist himself, Rabinowitch spoke with scientists and experts within and outside governments in many parts of the world. Based on those discussions, he decided where the clock should set. The Bulletin Science and Security Board meets twice a year to discuss world events and reset the clock as necessary. The board is made up of scientists and experts with deep knowledge of nuclear technology and climate science. They consult with the views of the bulletin's board of sponsors, which includes 13 Nobel laureates. The Doomsday Clock is located in the lobby of the bulletin offices at the University of Chicago. So what's the greater threat to mankind, nuclear weapons or climate change? Well, they both have the potential to destroy us. If we don't reduce emissions... Natural resources like fresh water could become scarce. That could lead to conflicts that might spiral into war, possible use of nuclear weapons. We really can't afford to address one threat without addressing the other. Trying to answer that question is like standing in a burning house arguing about whether it's better to die of smoke inhalation or get hit from falling timbers. What can ordinary people do to help? We've talked about this before. First, you have to get smart about the problems. Nuclear weapons and climate change may seem to be outside our daily experience and way beyond our control. You could share what you've learned with others in your family, workplace, church, school, social media. Talk about it. Tell your government representatives that you don't want more of your tax money spent on nuclear weapons or subsidizing carbon dioxide-producing fossil fuel technologies. You've heard me mention several times the app Make Five Calls. It's empowering to call and talk to a congressman. Too often we think that one voice in the wilderness can't change anything. But just think about the protests going on across the globe right now. People are paying attention to the protesters' demands for equal rights and an end to racism. If everyone had stayed home and watched Netflix or Amazon Prime, nothing would have changed. Let's take a quick look at the history of the clock and where the settings were at different times throughout history. In 1963, it was 12 minutes to midnight. After a decade of almost nonstop nuclear testing, the United States and the Soviet Union signed the Partial Test Ban Treaty, which ended atmospheric nuclear testing. The treaty did not outlaw underground testing, it did slow the arms race. It also signaled an awareness by both countries that they needed to work together to prevent nuclear war. We skipped ahead to 1974, and the clock was down to nine minutes to midnight. South Asia got the bomb. India tested its first nuclear device, and the United States and the Soviet Union appeared to be modernizing their nuclear forces, not reducing them. Uh Uh-oh, it's 1981. The Soviets invade Afghanistan. President Jimmy Carter pulls the United States from the Olympic Games and considers ways in which the United States could win a nuclear war. Newly elected President Ronald Reagan scraps any talks of arms control and proposes the best way to end the Cold War is for the United States to win it the clock moves to four minutes to midnight. Ten years pass, and the clock moves back and forth, and in 1991, there's good news. The clock moves all the way back to 17 minutes because the Cold War is over, and the United States and Russia begin to make deep cuts in their nuclear arsenals. But you know, us humans, we just can't stand progress. Time passes, tensions across the world rise, and in 2007, the clock moves back to five minutes to midnight. Why? The United States and Russia remain ready to stage a nuclear attack within minutes. North Korea conducts nuclear tests. And Iran plans to acquire the bomb. Climate change now presents a challenge to humanity. Damage to ecosystems are already taking place. Flooding, destructive storms, increased drought, polar ice melts, causing havoc, loss of life and property. The clock bounced around during the next 11 years, up a little, down a little bit. And in 2018, the clock moved again to two minutes to midnight. And in 2020, the clock moved to 100 seconds to midnight. Civilization, nuclear ending war, whether by design or mistake or miscommunication, it's a possibility. Climate change that could devastate the planet is undeniable. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and Security Board moved the clock 20 seconds closer, closer to apocalypse than ever. What does the future hold? Mass food and water shortages could push mankind closer to midnight. In the story of Cinderella, at midnight, she lost her shoe, her man, and her transportation. That was a bad night. Imagine if Cinderella had modern technology. Her smartphone could have warned her it was almost midnight. And if she had a Tesla with autopilot, she could have been home in minutes. And in 2010, Blake Bevan created a prototype of self-lacing shoes. A good pair of self-lacing shoes would have saved everyone a lot of time in Cinderella. In November, let's get smarter people in the White House and in the EPA and get moving towards solving these difficult problems and pushing that clock back. Speaking of doomsday, have you ever seen the 2008 movie called Doomsday? In the movie, an unknown killer virus known as the Reaper virus has infected the country of Scotland. You can look up the rest of the story. I don't really want to talk about another killer virus. Britain builds a 30-foot wall around Scotland to protect it from dangerous gangs. I'm pretty sure Mexico didn't pay for it. Another movie to watch is from 1964, and it's called Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Stanley Kubrick, the man who directed such great movies as Spartacus, 2001, and The Shining, directed this movie, but it's a comedy. What's so funny about nuclear war? The plot revolves around an insane general who triggers a path to nuclear holocaust and a war room of politicians and generals frantically try to stop him. Peter Sellers plays three roles. George C. Scott is in it and a young James Earl Jones is in it long before he was the voice of Darth Vader or CNN. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Iron Maiden's 1984 song, Two Minutes to Midnight, which refers to the doomsday clock. And the chorus of the song says, Two Minutes to Midnight, The Hands That Threaten Doom, Two Minutes to Midnight, To Kill the Unborn in the Womb. There's been some books that have Doomsday in the title. 1992 Doomsday Book, a science fiction novel by American author Connie Willis. That book won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And let's not forget Doomsday Apocalypse, 2018, the first book in the Doomsday series, written by Bobby Eckhart. And finally, check out a great nonfiction read, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner by Daniel Ellsberg. You may remember Ellsberg. He's best known for releasing the Pentagon Papers, which revealed that the United States had expanded its war in the bombing of Cambodia and Laos, none of which had been reported to the American media. Hollywood turned that story into the 2017 movie called The Post, starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. That's enough talk about Doomsday for one week. It's time for the Carbon Dioxide Report. After a long break, I'm pleased to announce that our top reporter is back on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Wheezy McWeeklong. Wheezy, it's great to have you back. We sent you to eastern Fiji. And I heard that the real-time air quality there in Fiji today is a remarkably clean 7. What do you have to say about finally getting to a place where the air is clean and you can breathe?
0: Woohoo hoo
3: (laughs) I guess Wheezy is feeling better. It's too bad he won't actually give us a live report. The air in Fiji, and in most of the world, is much improved. But what about the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere? As the air quality index improved around the world, did the carbon dioxide levels drop in equal amounts?
2: Fact or fiction?
3: Nope, that's fiction. Why isn't the impact of the world being shut down for so long, lowering the overall amount of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. The annual average of carbon dioxide concentrations are still going to increase throughout the year, even though emissions are reducing. The estimated carbon dioxide levels will rise by 2.48 parts per million. This increase is 0.32 parts per million smaller than if there had been no lockdown at all. This means that although global emissions are smaller, they're still continuing, just at a slower rate. Additional carbon dioxide is still accumulating in the atmosphere. Think of this as filling a bath from the tap. If the tap water represents carbon dioxide emissions and the water level in the bathtub is carbon dioxide concentrations, while we have slightly turned down the tap temporarily, water is still flowing into the bathtub, and so the level is still rising. Really slow down climate change. The tap needs to be turned down and permanently. Carbon dioxide emissions and carbon dioxide concentrations are not the same thing. Emissions are the amount being released into the atmosphere by human activity, like things like fossil fuel and burning and deforestation. Concentrations are the amount actually in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide has steadily risen every year carbon dioxide record is the data behind the iconic Keeling curve, which we talked about in episode 5 when we honored Charles Keeling. The measurements at the observatory in Hawaii over recent weeks show carbon dioxide has continued to rise. The average for April has already set a new record high monthly value of 416.2 parts per million, which is likely to be the highest concentration for at least 2 million years. For carbon dioxide to stop building up in the atmosphere, we've got to drop our use by 50% in the short term and even more in the long term. The current level, 416.3 parts per million. That's up from 414.73 on the first episode of this podcast on February 15th. And that's with a pandemic that shut down practically every business in the world. Well, I guess things haven't improved as much as I had hoped. Let's keep working on it.
0: It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week.
3: Today's Climate Hero of the Week is former 1986 draft pick of the Detroit Lions, the National Football League. Leland Melvin is his name. Injuries prevented Leland from playing a regular season game, but it never stopped him from reaching new heights, new heights as in becoming an astronaut. Leland overcame a serious training accident that almost ended his career with NASA, but he persevered and flew on the space shuttle missions in 2008 and 2009. He makes the list today for his contributions to Nat Geo's docuseries, One Strange Rock. Leland had a great opportunity to see our world from the International Space Station. On the show, each one-hour episode takes a look into one specific feature that makes Earth special. He shared his observations from space, and he was able to connect scientific themes on a personal level. Leland logged more than three weeks in space and brought his jersey along with him on his first mission to the space station to replace one of the nitrogen tanks. Leland said, I saw the Caribbean, the colors, the ocean. In that moment, I had a perspective change. The planet is not the fragile thing. It's us that's fragile. In space, you learn to have more empathy for others and the condition of the places other people are living. Doing something that's bigger than yourself, building an outpost for the entire planet, It puts things in a different light. In the bigger picture, we're all connected on this one strange rock. Leland's published two books, Chasing Space, An Astronaut's Story of Grit, Grace, and Second Chances, and Chasing Space, Young Reader's Edition. Leland gets it. It's the people that will suffer if we don't take care of our world. The world will keep spinning. Long after mankind is a blip on the history of Earth, the planet will recover and heal, changed, perhaps with a bit more plastic and styrofoam but it will heal. That's the spirit of the environmental movement. I might not live long enough to see all the changes required to clean the planet. That's okay. I'll be a happy camper just knowing that in 10, 20, or 30 years, fossil fuels will be a thing of the past, and parents will teach their children about how dirty Earth used to be. But people figured out how to run cars without gasoline, and scientists learned how to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and we found a way to clean up the oceans. Now about achieving world peace... Let's just take one crisis at a time. Oh, and one more thing. Just like the great Galileo, Leland and I share the same birthday.
1: Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the
3: Week. Today's Villain of the Week is Myron Ebel. He's the guy in charge of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron has admitted they use money his organization solicited from the DDT, cigarette and coal industries, to conduct intentionally biased research to support fossil fuels and trash renewable energy goals. He's also the chairman of the Cooler Heads Coalition, which presents itself as focused on dispelling the myths of global warming by exposing flawed economic, scientific, and risk analysis. Ebel promotes climate change denial, distributing his views to the media and politicians. In the 1990s, while serving as policy director at the Frontiers of Freedom Institute, Ebel worked as part of the team to make regulating the tobacco industry politically unpalatable. It's kind of funny because cigarettes are unpalatable. In 2011, as part of the Control Abuse of Power Project, the CEI launched lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of the 1998 Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement. It's interesting as you look through time that people that were fighting tobacco labels and settlements against tobacco companies are the same people that are fighting against renewable energy and propping up fossil fuels. Ebel once said, carbon dioxide increases will lead to more plant growth and prosperity. Everyone will be more comfortable, including humans. Ebel has been described as enemy number one to the climate change community. Ebel headed the transition team at the EPA when the hater in chief took over. The president boasted that he would drain the swamp, but Ebel is the swamp. He's a creature of the swamp. He's been taking money from the oil and gas industry for years. Don't forget to vote. Life finds a way. That famous line is from the 1993 blockbuster film Jurassic Park, seen nightly in my house, and the movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. If you've ever watched the movie, you know that death finds a way, too especially if you're trying to hide from a T-Rex in an outhouse. When told that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park can't breed, Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, asks, How do you know they can't breed? Scientist Henry Wu tells him, Well, because all the animals in Jurassic Park are female. We've engineered them that way. Goldblum says, No, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. And so it did for Charlie, the Komodo dragon living in the Chattanooga Zoo. The Komodo dragon is about as close to looking like anything as a dinosaur I've ever seen. A DNA test has revealed that Charlie, a female Komodo dragon, conceived her three baby lizards without the help of a male partner. Zookeepers had initially placed her with a male Komodo dragon, a dashing young dragon named Kadal, hoping the two would hit it off. But apparently, Charlie swiped left, not right, and Charlie decided to have triplets all on her own. We asked Charlie how come she didn't mate with any of the male dragons. She didn't seem to be pleased with the question. Charlie performed this unusual feat thanks to a process called parthenogenesis, which refers to a type of reproduction where the female produces offspring without male fertilization. Parthenogenesis, according to the zoo, evolved in Komodo dragons as a result of how they live in the wild. Apparently, their lives are isolated, and they become violent when approached. That happened to me once in the flats in downtown Cleveland in 1985, but that's another story. Parthenogenesis allows the lady lizards to develop this handy, male-free method of reproduction. So guys, be nice to your ladies, or you might be thrown off that new reality show, Reproduction Island. So if Charlie the Komodo dragon can do it by herself, can other species perform this little trick? Yes, they can. Stick insects. Female Australian giant prickly stick insects will mate with males when it suits them, but they've found ways to repel them so they can have young without any male interference. Female giant prickly stick insects, try saying that five times fast, they will even fight off lustful mates. First, they emit an anti-aphrodisiac chemical to stave off temptation, kind of like spraying mace at an over-aggressive pursuer. If a male is still interested, the female will curl up her abdomen and kick her legs to repel him. I guess she kicks him right in the prickly parts. So what does this have to do with climate change or pollution? Well, it's simple. Just because we think we know how nature will respond to our continued abuse of the planet, remember, life finds a way. Wait, my kid bought one of those build-your-own-dinosaur kits? I I hear something. Hold on. I'll be right back. celebrating a special day for a very special man. Happy birthday! Frank Sherwood Sherry Rowland was born on June 28, 1927. Rowland died in 2012, but we remember him for his achievements. If you ever wondered why manufacturers changed the ingredients in underarm deodorants, you can thank Sherry Rowland. Sherry's best-known work was the discovery that chlorofluorocarbons contribute to ozone depletion. Roland theorized that man-made organic compound gases combine with solar radiation and decompose in the stratosphere, releasing atoms of chlorine and chlorine monoxide that are individually able to destroy large numbers of ozone molecules. That was back in the early 70s when I was trying to learn how to hit a curveball, and Roland was saving the ozone layer. Science wins again! In 1978... The first ban on CFC-based aerosols and spray cans was issued in the United States. Further validation of Sherry's work came in the mid-1980s with the discovery of the so-called hole in the ozone shield over Antarctica. Among his long list of awards and honors, Sherry won the Albert Einstein World Award of Science in 1994 and the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1995. I'd like to give a shout-out to my listener in the beautiful city of Ekaterinburg, Russia. To you, I say, Dobra otra. That's good morning in Russia. By the way, did you know the Nature Museum in Ekaterinburg showcases major periods of the Ural Mountains, plants, and animals of the times gone by? The most notable exhibits are a 500-kilogram block of malachite and the full skeletons of a mammoth and giant deer, also known as the Irish elk, also known as Megaloceros gigantus. Don't you just love that name? Megalosaurus gigantus. It sure does sound big, and it is. Megalosaurus gigantic stood about seven feet high, about the same size as former basketball superstar Shaquille O'Neal. And the museum has a print of the spiral dental apparatus of a prehistoric heliocopron shark. What was so special about that shark? Until 2013, the only known fossils of this genus on record were the teeth, which were arranged like, they call it a tooth war, W-H-O-R-L, a tooth whorl in its lower jaw, strongly reminiscent of a circular saw. That sounds like the kind of shark that needs to reproduce by herself. Instead of teeth chomping down on you from above and below, the prey would get spun in towards the shark's throat and sliced up like meat you'd order from a delicatessen. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to drop me an email, send it to rf at richardfriedman.net. Until next time, good night, Galileo.
2: Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.